You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you a wide range of articles from a variety of sources. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey, and this is being recorded on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, for the listening week that begins the 25th, Christmas Day. And I will begin with a couple of Christmas-related articles. First, we have from... CPR News. This was recently heard on NPR from Arts and Life. Children's artist Jazzy Ash wraps up a busy year with new Christmas songs. This was originally posted on December 19th. Ashley St. Armont is a singer and educator best known as Jazzy Ash performing New Orleans-style jazz for children far and wide. She's also written and narrated audiobooks for young people. And to get her many fans into the holiday spirit, she's recorded some Christmas tunes, including Zat You, Santa Claus, a classic tune associated with Louis Armstrong. He's from New Orleans, and my family is from New Orleans, at least seven generations. So he's always been dear to my heart says Ash. I love how playful his music is. My work is all about introducing children to the magic and improvisation of jazz. St. Armand, 37, lives in Southern California. Her mother was and still is a preschool music teacher and used to run a daycare at their home. That was really crazy and cool to have all these little kids, and I was surrounded by children's music, she recalls. I suppose that's how I got into children's music. She studied musical theater in college and dreamed of singing on Broadway. Then she got married, and as she raised two sons, she taught music to preschoolers like her mother had. Her sons are now teens, and in October she got married for the second time. For the past six years, St. Armand has performed around the country with her band, Jazzy Ash and the Leaping Lizards. During gigs, she often talks to kids about the history of black America, and she shares stories about her family, including her grandfather, who'd been a civil rights leader in New Orleans. They ask me questions about my family like, does everybody in your family sing? I say, not everybody, just me and my wife. My kids don't sing. And they go, your wife? She says, Just walking through America as a black, queer woman speaks volumes. What I pride myself on is that I have a way of presenting it in a way that's approachable and fun. And in that way, I think I'm making my grandfather proud. Last summer, St. Armand contributed to a biographical series called Rebel Girls. One of the profiles she narrated was about poet Maya Angelou, who once was a streetcar conductor in San Francisco. Another story was about Leah Chase, a famous New Orleans chef who inspired the story The Princess and the Frog. Fun fact, my mother went to school with Leah Chase's daughter, who is also a jazz singer, St. Armand says. She's also written her own original stories for Audible. 
I thought this would be a cool opportunity to reimagine my own childhood, she says, because I spent a lot of my summers and holidays in New Orleans. At the time, she recalls, she had no idea that the French Quarter was across the river and all this amazing food and rich history and pirates and all these things. And I thought, what if I had had the chance to explore that? What if I had solved mysteries? Solving Mysteries in New Orleans is the premise of a series of the young adult audiobooks she has written about a teen detective named Viva Durant. In Viva Durant and the Secret of the Silver Buttons, the young sleuth tries to find a hidden treasure. St. Armand also collaborates with other children's musicians. One album she sang on recently, Activate, by 123 Andre. Oh, in parentheses it says that's pronounced uno, dos, tres, Andres, is now vying for a Grammy for Best Children's Music Album. I know very few artists like Ashley, says singer Andres Salguero, an amazing performer with a voice that is just so soulful and rich and playful, and then at the same time a writer touching so many young hearts. This has been a busy year for St. Armand. She recently released her second Viva Durant audiobook, and as Jazzy Ash dropped an album called Songs from the Playground, on which she reimagined African-American folk tunes sung by children in the 1920s. For another album, Good Foot, she tapped into black American sounds from the 1950s and 60s. Right now she's working on a musical she describes as Annie in the Antebellum South, and she's written and recorded Fly Through the Sky, an original Christmas song. That tune is about the magic of the night before Christmas, where you're hoping to catch a little glimpse of Santa Claus, says St. Armand. I love all that kind of stuff. I think I still have that magic. She really does. And I'm going to spell her name for those who might be interested in trying to pick up something last minute of hers. That's Ashley, A-S-H-L-I, St. Armand, S-T, period, capital A-R-M-A-N-T, and she can be found at audible.com. And speaking of Santa Claus, next one is related to that. Last week I read an article about black Santas, and we're following up this week with another look at that. Santa Claus should not be a white man anymore. This originally comes via Slate, and it was posted December 10th, written by Aisha Harris. When I was a kid, I knew two different Santa Clauses. The first had a fat belly, rosy cheeks, a long white beard, and skin as pink as bubblegum. He was omnipresent, visiting my preschool and the local mall, visible in all of my favorite Christmas specials. Then there was the Santa in my family's household in the form of ornaments, cards, and holiday figurines. A near-carbon copy of the first one, big belly, rosy cheeks, long white beard. Check, check, check. But his skin was as dark as mine. Seeing two different Santas was bewildering. 
Eventually, I asked my father what Santa really looked like. Was he brown like us, or was he really a white guy? My father replied that Santa was every color. Whatever house he visited, jolly old Saint Nicholas magically turned into the likeness of the family that lived there. In hindsight, I see this explanation as the great Hollywood spec script it really is. Parentheses. Just picture the past their prime actors who could share the role. Robert De Niro, Eddie Murphy, Jackie Chan. I smell a camp classic. But at the same time, I didn't buy it. I remember feeling slightly ashamed that our black Santa wasn't the real thing. Because when you're a kid and you're inundated with the imagery of a pale seasonal visitor, and you notice that even some black families decorate their houses with white Santas, you're likely to accept the consensus view, despite your parents' noble intentions. Two decades later, America is less and less white, but a melanin-deficient Santa remains the default in commercials, mall casting calls, and movies. Isn't it time that our image of Santa better serve all the children he delights each Christmas? Yes, it is, and so I propose that America abandon Santa as fat old white man and create a new symbol of Christmas cheer. From here on out, Santa Claus should be a penguin. That's right, a penguin. Why, you ask? For one thing, making Santa Claus an animal. Rather than an old white male, could spare bi- pardon me millions of non-white kids the insecurity and shame that I remember from childhood. Whether you celebrate the holiday or not, Santa is one of the first iconic figures foisted upon you. He exists as an incredibly powerful image in the imaginations of children across the country, and beyond, of course. That this genial, jolly man can only be seen as white. And consequently, that a Santa of any other hue is merely a joke or a chance to trudge out racist stereotypes, helps perpetuate the whole white as default notion endemic to American culture, and of course, not just American culture. Plus, people love penguins. There are blogs dedicated entirely to their cuteness. Their box office gold. More importantly, they are never scary, in contrast to say polar bears and reindeer. Most kids love Santa because he brings them presents, but human Santa can be terrifying, or at least unsettling. And with a penguin Santa, much Christmas folklore can remain unchanged. Being a penguin, Santa Claus can still ride. Pardon me, Santa Claus can still reside in a snowy homeland. Though the scientific accuracy will need to move him from the North Pole to the South, he can still rock a fake white beard and red suit if he chooses. Since penguins can't fly, Rudolph and his fellow reindeer will remain a crucial element to getting the job done on Christmas Eve. You may have even spotted a penguin here and there already among the holiday books and Christmas kitsch. Will kids have a harder time believing in Santa the penguin, A.K.A. Penguin claws, that in the fat, pardon me, than in the fat white guy that he's replacing. I don't think so. Kids are used to walking, talking bears and gigantic friendly birds. 
A penguin delivering gifts might even seem more feasible to them, since cartoons have primed them to consider such creatures fairly run-of-the-mill. Of course, since we created Santa, we can certainly change him however we like, and we have many times over. Like the holiday itself, Santa has long since been extracted from his religious roots, even if the name St. Nicholas still gets thrown around. Our current design takes inspiration from multiple sources, including Washington Irving's 1809 description of St. Nick riding jollily among the treetops or over the roofs of the houses, now and then drawing forth magnificent presents from his breeches' pockets and dropping them down the chimneys of his favorites. When Clement Clark Moore published A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1823, the old man was described and illustrated as a plump but elfin figure. Since then, Santa has been redesigned and reappropriated to push everything from soda to war. So let's ditch Santa the old white man altogether and embrace Penguin Claus, who will join the Easter Bunny and the pantheon of friendly, secular visitors from the animal kingdom who come to us as the representatives of ostensibly religious holidays. It's time to hand over the reins to those deer and let the universally beloved waddling bird warm the hearts of children everywhere regardless of the color of their skin. Moving now to some news articles as they appear in theroot.com recently. We have this one posted on the 23rd, written by Stephanie Holland. Nia Long joins Let the World See to give voice to Mamie Till Mobley's words. Nia Long will voice the words of Mamie Till Mobley in ABC's Let the World See docuseries. ABC News has added another notable name to its brown, groundbreaking docuseries, Let the World See. Nia Long has joined the project to voice the words of Mamie Till Mobley. The actress will read excerpts from Till Mobley's memoir, Death of Innocence, the story of the hate crime that changed America. Let the World See chronicles Till Mobley's fight for justice after the murder of her son. It will air as a companion to ABC's limited series, Women of the Movement. Premiering Thursday, January 6th at 10 p.m., Let the World See's first episode begins with an examination of Ms. Mamie Till Mobley's early life, Emmett Till's childhood, the fate of his father, and the events that led to Emmett Till's murder in Mississippi in the summer of 1955. As previously reported by The Root, the docuseries will also feature appearances from Chicago natives Michelle Obama and Common as they add their personal insights into the life and legacy of Ms. Mamie Till Mobley. Previously announced interviewees include Reverend Wheeler Parker, Emmett Till's cousin, who witnessed the abduction, Ollie Gordon and Amos Smith, Thelma Wright, Mamie Till Mobley's cousin, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Lint Rice, an FBI agent on the team that reopened the investigation more than 50 years later, Dan Wakefield, 
a journalist who covered Emmett Till's murder trial, and Betty Pearson, who was in the courtroom for the trial. Authors Angie Thomas, Christopher Benson, and John Edgar Weidman will offer insights, and Michael Eric Dyson will do a special reading of his letter to Emmett Till from the scene of the crime. Directed by Jean-Marie Condon and Fatima Curry, the docuseries counts Sean Carter and Will Smith among its executive producers. Limited series Women of the Movement shows how Mamie Till Mobley turned her grief into purpose as she became an activist for justice and igniting the civil rights movement as we know it today. It stars Adrian Warren as Mamie Till Mobley, Tanya Pinkins as Alma, Cedric Joe as Emmett Till, Ray Fisher as Jean Mobley, Glenn Turman as Mose White Wright, pardon me, Mose Wright, Chris Coy as J.W. Millam, Carter Jenkins as Roy Bryant, and Julia McDermott as Carolyn Bryant. Women of the Movement premieres Thursday, January 6th at 8 p.m. on ABC, followed by Let the World See at 10 p.m. Both series air across three consecutive weeks and are available on Hulu the day after their broadcast. And more media news. Atlanta Season 3 finally gets a premiere date. This is written by Chanel Janai, posted on the 23rd. After a three-year-long hiatus, the popular FX series is finally headed back to our screens. Okay, so because I'm hella excited about this news, I'm not going to lead into this with some cutesy lead or a punny joke. I'm going to cut right to the chase. Atlanta is back, baby. The show, I mean, not the city. The city is still in Georgia. It can't go anywhere, but you knew that. Anyway, as I mentioned... The Donald Glover-created series is finally headed back to our small screens after being delayed by conflicting filming schedules and this pandemic that acts like it doesn't know how or when to quit. FX announced on Wednesday that the popular series, which follows the misadventures of Ern, who was Glover, played by Glover, Alfred, a.k.a. Paperboy, played by Brian Tyree Henry, and Darius, played by Lake from Lakeith Stanfield, will return for its third season on March 24th, 2022, with a special two-episode premiere. Additionally, season four is also currently in production in Atlanta, so here's hoping we'll get hit with both a spring and winter season premiere in the new year. We've waited this long. That's the least they could do, right? Again, Season 3 of Atlanta premieres Thursday, March 24th on FX, streaming the next day on Hulu. Next article, still reading from TheRoot.com. Georgia City Tax Task Force votes to demolish Aunt Fanny's Cabin, a restaurant honoring a pre-Civil War South. This is written by Rachel Pilgrim, posted on the 22nd. Black servers danced on tables with wooden menus around their necks, and civil rights activist Fannie Williams pretended she was once a slave in front of diners. And there's a picture of the front of this building, which has crime tape around it. It has just a banner out front to label it Aunt Fannie's Cabin. And the caption under this photo is, says, Aunt Fannie's Cabin, a long-shuttered restaurant that once 
was one of the most popular eateries in the South during World War II, which is pictured here on November 18, 2021, in Smyrna, Georgia. A task force in the Atlanta suburb recommended last week that Aunt Fanny's cabin be put up for demolition unless a group comes forward to remove it from city property. The task force said only the cabin's fireplace and chimney should be preserved as a monument to Fanny Williams, the restaurant's namesake. And now the article. A Georgia city task force voted to demolish a World War II-era restaurant that's theme honored the pre-Civil War South. For decades, Aunt Fanny's Cabin attracted regular and famous diners in Smyrna, Georgia, with its southern recipes and, quote, family-like atmosphere, until it closed in 1992. Apparently for those diners, racist imagery and black staff acting as caricatures was the perfect setting for Sunday brunch. Last week, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a racially diverse task force made of city councilmen, an historian, and community members voted to rid their community of a monument to a racist past. The restaurant, which saw the likes of former U.S. President Jimmy Carter and several white American icons, according to the Associated Press, was named after black civil rights activist Fannie Williams. After the restaurant's closing, the Journal-Constitution reports, most of the cabin's original structure was torn down. Some pieces, including its front porch, were bought by the city to create a replica for the Welcome Center. Over time, the site developed structural problems, reported AP, and it was determined that it would cost over $500,000 to repair. Here's a further quote from AP Press. The recommendation now goes to Smyrna's City Council, which could make a final decision next month. The now-defunct restaurant became a well-known dining destination starting in the mid-1900s. Its guests included sports icons Jack Dempsey and Ty Cobb and Hollywood star Doris Day. Former President Jimmy Carter stopped at the cabin during his campaigns. But it also embraced an Old South decor and theme that was adopted by other restaurants. According to news reports, black youths hired as servers wore wooden menu boards around their necks and danced on tabletops, and the walls had framed advertisements for slaves. Williams sat on the front porch in a faded dress and head wrap, telling customers about her days as a slave though she never was a slave, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. A statement posted last week on the city of Smyrna's website blasted, quote, the caricature and overt indignity of the theme of the establishment that was Aunt Fanny's cabin. We wish to honor Fanny Williams and not the racist theme and myths of the former establishment and others like it. Popular and profitable in post-World War II Atlanta, the statement went on, though sometimes viewed in more glowing terms by an almost exclusively white patronage and f- with fond memories of, quote, great food and a family atmosphere, these establishments are symbols and sentiments of a time that does not re- represent or honor the dignity of all, and certainly does not represent our community. The statement said Williams, 
a civil rights activist who helped raise money for a black hospital, was exploited in the restaurant's social and marketing myths. Back to the article. It really came down to do... Pardon me. Yes, that's what it says. It really came down to do we want this to be a part of our community and that at the end of the day was something that we all had to kind of wrestle with, said Lewis Wheaton, a city councilman and co-chairman of the task force, according to the journal Constitution. My hope and expectation is that we will shift to having better conversations about what to do with that property to pay tribute to Fannie Williams herself, and that's where I think we are headed now. Jane Farmer, whose grandmother, Marjorie Bowman, was one of several owners of Aunt Fanny's over the years, says she doesn't remember the restaurant for any of its racially offensive gimmicks, but rather as a happy place in her childhood. She told the Journal-Constitution that another owner, after her grandmother, must have implemented such changes. She said, People were always so glad to see you. It was such a beautiful thing and a great place to go. People loved it. But I'm so very sorry that it offended people. It should not do that. And if we could go back in time, we'd change it. The task force said that unless a group comes to remove the cabin from city property, it will be torn down, leaving only the fireplace and chimney to be preserved in honor of Fanny Williams. Next article is written by Noah A. McGee. It was posted on the 23rd. Wreckage of the last U.S. slave ship intact on the Alabama coast. The Clotilda was found on an Alabama coast, and much of it remains whole. Researchers and archaeologists who have been analyzing and exploring the remains of the last U.S. slave ship on the coast of Alabama, a.k.a. the Clotilda, have discovered that most of the ship is still intact since it sank in 1860, according to the Associated Press. They found the cage that was used to detain enslaved Africans as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, also the lower deck that was used to hold more enslaved Africans and stocks of goods, was still mostly preserved after it settled underwater in a section of the river for decades. According to Search Incorporated Maritime, archaeologist James Delgado, this quote from the Associated Press has more details on the parts of the ship that are still recognizable. At least two-thirds of the ship remains, and the existence of the unlit and unventilated slave pen built during the voyage by the addition of a bulkhead where people were held as cargo below the main deck for weeks raises questions about whether food and water containers, chains, and even human DNA could remain in the hull, said Delgado. It's a stunning revelation, he said in an interview. The discovery enhances the research value of the Clotilda's remains and sets them apart from all other wrecks, said Delgado. The finding was confirmed in a report that was provided to the Associated Press and led to the site becoming part of the National Register of Historic Places in November. It's the most intact slave ship wreck ever discovered, he said. It's because it's sitting in the Mobile Tensaw Delta, with fresh water and in mud that protected it that it's still there. 
Jocelyn Davis, the vice president of the Clotilda Descendants Association, and a sixth-generation granddaughter of African captive Charlie Lewis, thinks that the best way to learn what happened on that ship 160 years ago is for it to be shared through the people who were directly involved and affected. She also added that she is enthusiastic to learn more about the discoveries from the wreckage. Per the story from the Associated Press, this quote, The Clotilda was the last ship known to transport African captives to the American South for enslavement, nearly 90 feet in length. It departed Mobile, Alabama for an illegal trip to purchase people decades after Congress outlawed such trade in 1808. The ship had been sent across the ocean on a voyage financed by a wealthy businessman whose descendants remain prominent in Mobile. The Clotilda's captain transferred its human cargo off the ship once it arrived in Alabama and set fire to the vessel to hide evidence of the journey. But most of the ship didn't catch fire and remained in the river. Shown on navigational charts since the 1950s, the wreckage was publicly identified as that of Clotilda in 2019 and has been explored and researched since then, said Delgado. End of quote from AP. One million dollars has been set aside by the state of Alabama to both preserve the ship and for more research to be conducted. Researchers need to determine whether the ship can be fully pulled out of the river and put on display. A documentary called Descendant is also being developed about the African captives who were on the Clotilda and settled in a community they started near Mobile, Alabama, called Africatown, USA, according to the Associated Press. This next article originally appeared in The Griot, written by Aisha Powell, posted December 18th. High-ranking African cardinal is allegedly fed up and offers resignation letter to the Vatican. Cardinal Peter Turkson of Ghana, key advisor to the Pope and the only African to head a Vatican department, pardon me, has abruptly offered his letter of resignation. Peter Turkson, the Ghanaian cardinal to the Catholic Church and the only African to head a Vatican department, pardon me, they've repeated themselves, (laughs) has abruptly offered his resignation. On Saturday, Turkson has become one of the key advisors to Pope Francis on issues like climate control and social justice, and some experts say he could have been a leading candidate to become the next pope, which would make him the first black pope in 1,500 years. The pope has yet to announce his acceptance of this resignation. According to inside sources, Turkson is reportedly fed up with internal disputes in the Catholic Church. The 73-year-old heads the Dicastery for Integral Human Development, which was founded in 2016 to deal with issues like peace, justice, and migration. Earlier this year, the Pope requested that Turkson's department undergo an external review headed by the Cardinal Blaise Kupich of Chicago. If accepted, Turkson's departure would leave the Vatican with no African head of a major department. The other African department head, Cardinal Robert Sarah of Guinea, retired in February after being appointed by Pope John Paul II in 1979. 
This year has been particularly rocky for the Vatican. Following a continuation of the clergy child sexual abuse scandal, a new 2021 report alleged that more than 200,000 minors were abused by the Catholic Church in France over the past seven decades. Several members of the Church faced abuse charges and were forced to vacate their positions. In June 2021, German Cardinal Reinhard Marx sent a letter of resignation as a symbol of the Church's systemic failure on child abuse and said that he wanted to share the responsibility of the mishandling of cases. Pope Francis denied Marx's request, commanding him to continue as Archbishop. It is urgent to air out this reality of the abuses and how the cap, pardon me, and how the Church acted, and let the Spirit lead us to the desert of desolation, to the cross and to the resurrection, said the Pope in a statement responding to the heightened calls for the Church to address the long-standing issues of sexual assault. He added, Silences, omissions, and giving too much weight to the prestige of the institution only leads to personal and historical failure and makes us live with the weight of having skeletons in the closet. According to church rules, Turkson would still be eligible to be a part of the group of cardinals that gets to elect the next pope after Francis dies or retires. Despite not giving an official reason for his resignation, Vatican sources say that Turkson will give more information after the pope makes his decision. Next, we'll take an opportunity to honor Bell Hooks, who recently passed This article was posted on the 16th and comes from the New York Times, written by Jennifer Schisler. The Wide-Angle Vision and Legacy of Bell Hooks, the pioneering feminist scholar who died this week, wrote about women, race, love, healing, pop culture, and much more, always keeping black women at the center. The news that Bell Hooks had died at 69 spread quickly across social media on Wednesday, prompting a flood of posts featuring favorite quotes about love, justice, men, women, community, and healing, as well as testimonials about how this pioneering black feminist writer had changed or saved lives. If the outpouring felt more intense than the usual tributes to departed scholars, admirers say that merely reflected the extraordinary way she mixed the emotional with the intellectual in her quest to make the experiences of black women not just visible, but central to a sweeping reimagination of society. I think we can't overstate her influence, said Imani Perry, a professor of African-American studies at Princeton. For so many people, Bell Hooks was their first introduction to social theory, critiques of patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. But even more, she said, Hooks's writing and her impact was personal. Perry said, She came from this really sophisticated world of cultural theory, but she connected it to her very particular experience of growing up in Jim Crow, Kentucky. She had all the chops to write in this more traditional, drier, academic style, but she chose differently because she wanted to connect with everyday people. 
Perry first met Hooks in the early 1990s. She was working as an intern at South End Press, which had published Ain't I a Woman, Hooks's groundbreaking 1981 book about the impact of both racism and sexism on black women. It was a book about intersectionality before there was a word for it. Just one example of how the more than 30 books she wrote anticipated debates and concepts from self-care to cultural appropriation that are mainstays today. Kimberlé Crenshaw, the legal scholar who coined the term intersectionality in 1989, said that Hooks's work gave theoretical ballast to political organizing that was happening on the ground. It helped make it possible to critique both white-led feminism and the male-dominated anti-racism movement without feeling like a traitor. Crenshaw said, Sometimes people say things or write things that so capture your experience that you forget never not knowing it or thinking it. Bell is one of those people. Ain't I a Woman, which Hooks began writing when she was 19, was part of a wave of black women's writing in the 1970s, from Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye and Toni Cade Bambara's pardon me, anthology The Black Woman, both from 1970, through Alice Walker's landmate, landmark 1975 essay In Search of Zora Neale Hurston and Angela Davis's 1981 Women, Race, and Class. Parentheses. Bell Hooks was the pen name of Gloria Watkins, derived from the name of her great-grandmother and written in all lowercase letters to shift identity from herself to her ideas. In her next book, Feminist Theory, From Margin to Center, Hooks gave a crisp definition of feminism as the struggle to end sexist oppression. If she was critical of white bourgeois hegemonic dominance of feminist movements, she also warned against using such critiques to, quote, trash, reject, or dismiss feminism itself. In the late 1980s, Hooks came to broader prominence in the heyday of a new generation of university-based black public intellectuals, and she was the rare woman in a circle seemingly defined by male scholars like Henry Louise Gates, Jr., Michael Eric Dyson, and Cornel West, with whom she wrote Breaking Bread in 1991. But while Hooks spent her entire career in the academy, teaching at Yale, Oberlin, Berea College in Kentucky, and other institutions, she was not solely of it. For her, theory wasn't an abstract exercise, but a tool for self-understanding and survival. I came to theory because I was hurting, she wrote in her 1991 essay, Theory as Liberatory Practice. I came to theory desperate, wanting to comprehend to grasp what was happening around and within me. She saw the university setting, which was dismissed by some as an elitist space, instead as a site of revolutionary possibility. But she also engaged with popular culture in essays that could be as rhetorically blunt as they were intellectually serpentine. In Madonna, Plantation Mistress or Soul Sister, included in her 1992 book Black Looks, race and representation, she unpacked the singer's groin-grabbing appropriation of phallic black masculinity 
which she used to taunt white men with what they lack. By saying, Madonna may hate the phallus, but she longs to possess its power. In another chapter, she criticized the 1991 documentary Paris is Burning for failing to interrogate whiteness and instead glorifying and sanitizing a drag culture grounded in the fantasy that ruling class white culture is the quintessential site of unrestricted joy, freedom, power, and pleasure. She wrote, But her critiques of black culture were more complicated than the bite-sized quotes in media interviews that might have suggested. In a 93 article in the New York Times about the boiling controversy over gangster rap, she likened it to crack. She said, It's like we have consumed the worst stereotypes white people have put on black people. But later, she lamented in an interview that she did with Ice Cube in Spin magazine that that interview had been cut to nothing as part of a mass media setup all too familiar to black thinkers. She wrote then, To white-dominated mass media, the controversy over gangster rap makes a great spectacle. Journalists and producers that call seeking the hardcore feminist trash of gangster rap, she noted, usually lost interest when they encountered, instead, the hardcore feminist critique of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. She was not without her critics, including among other black feminists, Michelle Wallace once derided what she saw as Hooks's repetitive dogmatic style. Wallace wrote, Without the unlovely PC code phrases, white supremacy, patriarchal domination, and self-recovery, Hooks couldn't write a sentence. And in 2016, Hooks's critical remarks about Beyoncé's visual album Lemonade, which she described as capitalist money-making at its best, caused a furor among black feminist scholars and writers. It's all about the body and the body as commodity, she wrote in The Guardian. This is certainly not radical or revolutionary. From slavery to the present day, black female bodies, clothed and unclothed, have been bought and sold. To some, Hooks had grown detached from the hearts and minds of black women, as a writer for Ebony put it. But as with her earlier criticisms of Beyoncé, as being complicit in the visual construction of herself as a slave, Hooks's assessment was more nuanced than the quotes suggested. And if her criticism seemed out of step with the evolving pop culture-savvy black feminist thought she had helped give birth to, they also illustrated its depth. Historian Anthea Butler said, We learned we could disagree with her. She was critical of Hooks at the time and wrote at this week, Looking back, Hooks's criticism of Beyoncé was a moment to embrace how feminists, especially black feminists, embrace other paradigms of feminist power. Hooks became intellectually famous, mostly the old-fashioned way, by writing. Perry, the Princeton professor, said that students she knew were just as likely to come to Hooks's works through personal reading as through course assignments. 
Today, her titles are often shelved in bookstores under self-help, and on the internet, hooks can seem to share the double-edged canonization of one of her childhood muses, Emily Dickinson, another radical woman writer. But if interpersonal relationships struck some as an unserious subject, Hooks was unfazed. Love, she said, requires integrity that there be a congruency between what we think, say, and do. She said love is first and foremost about knowledge. And I'll follow that with excerpts from another article on Bell Hooks, just to finish that out. The revolutionary writing of Bell Hooks. This one also comes from the New Yorker. Oh, and this comes from the New Yorker. Pardon me. And it was written by Hua Su. It was posted December fifteenth. Byline: Through her scholarship and criticism, Hooks, who died this week, rewrote our understanding of Black feminism and womanhood, and gave a generation of readers a new way of looking at the world. Once again, this was posted December fifteenth. Before she became Bell Hooks, one of the great cultural critics and writers of the 20th century, and before she inspired generations of readers, especially black women, to understand their own access-tilting power, she was Gloria Jean Watkins, daughter of Rosa Bell and Viotis Watkins. Hooks, who died on Wednesday, was raised in Hopkinsville, a small segregated town in Kentucky, Everything she would become began there. She was born in 1952 and attended segregated schools up until college. It was in the classroom that she, eager to learn, began glimpsing the liberatory possibilities of education. She loved movies, yet the ways in which the theater made us occasionally captive to small-mindedness and stereotype compelled her to wonder if there were ways to look and talk back at the screen's moving images. Growing up, her father was a janitor and her mother worked as a maid for white families. Their work, rife with minor indignities, brought into focus the everyday power of an impolite glare or rolling your eyes. A new world is born out of such small gestures of resistance, of affirming your rightful space. In 1973, Watkins graduated from Stanford. As a 19-year-old undergraduate, she had already completed a draft of a visionary history of black feminism and womanhood. In the late 70s, she began publishing poetry under the pen name Bell Hooks, a tribute to her great-grandmother, Bell Blair Hooks, and the lowercase was meant to distinguish her from her great-grandmother, and to suggest that what mattered was the substance of the work, not the author's name. In the 80s and 90s, Hooks taught at Yale University, Oberlin College and the City College of New York. She was a prolific scholar and writer, publishing nearly 40 books and hundreds of articles. Among her most influential ideas was that of the oppositional gaze. Power relations are encoded in how we look at one another. Enslaved people were once punished for merely looking at their white owners. Hooks's notion of a confrontational, rebellious way of looking sought to short-circuit the male gaze or the white gaze, which wanted to render black female spectators as passive or somehow other. 
She appreciated the power of critiquing or making art from this defiantly black perspective. I came to her work in the mid-90s during a fertile area, pardon me, a fertile era of black cultural studies, when it felt like your typical alternative weekly or independent magazine was as rigorous as an academic monograph. For Hooks, writing in the public sphere was just an application of her mind to a more immediate concern. Whether her subject was Madonna, Spike Lee, or Larry Clark's kids, she was writing at a time when the serious study of culture was still a scrappy undertaking. She reached people, and that's what a generation of us wanted to do with our intellectual work. She wrote children's books. She wrote essays that people read in college classrooms and prisons alike. She was at her sharpest in resisting the banal, market-ready refractions of blackness or womanhood that represent easy, meager progress. This has been a particularly trying time for critics who came of age in the 80s and 90s as giants like Hooks, Greg Tate, and Dave Hickey have passed. Hooks was a brilliant, tough critic. No doubt her death will inspire many revisitations of works like Ain't I a Woman, Black Looks, and Outlaw Culture. Yet she was also a dazzling memoirist and poet. In 2004, Hooks returned to Kentucky to teach at Berea College, where she also founded the Bell Hooks Institute. Over the past two decades, Hooks's published criticism turned from film and literature to relationships, love, sexuality, the way in which members of a community remain accountable for one another. Quoting her, If I were really asked to define myself, she told a Buddhist magazine in the early 90s, I wouldn't start with race, I wouldn't start with blackness, I wouldn't start with gender, I wouldn't start with feminism. I would start with stripping down to what fundamentally informs my life, which is that I'm a seeker on the path. I think of feminism and I think of anti-racist struggles as part of it. But where I stand spiritually is steadfastly on a path about love. And I'd like to close out this week's hour with an article about Kwanzaa again this year. Which year I tried to read one. This one comes from Food 52. What Kwanzaa means to black Americans now and always. This was written by Kyla Stewart, posted December 21st. The week-long holiday originated in the 1960s to celebrate the African diaspora in America, but has evolved from its origins as different black communities embrace it. When National Museum of African American History and Culture Oral History Museum Specialist Kelly Elaine Navies celebrated Kwanzaa while growing up in the Bay Area, food was always the center of the celebration. Having a feast, you're celebrating the culture and the diversity of African culture throughout the world, said Navies. Her memories ring true of the estimated millions of people who celebrate Kwanzaa in the United States and around the world. An American holiday in its origins, Kwanzaa is a celebration of African American history and heritage celebrated through gift-giving, nightly candle lighting, and, of course, food. 
Navies said, I always saw Kwanzaa celebrations as really warm, love-filled, love-filled, pardon me, celebrations of African community and culture. I have a lot of warm memories of visiting people for Kwanzaa and large gatherings, delicious food, always delicious food, music, and poetry. A secular holiday in its nature, Kwanzaa welcomes black Americans from all religious beliefs and is represented by pan-African colors, green, black, and red. With roots in California, Kwanzaa is deeply intertwined in ideas of black liberation. Many people involved in the black consciousness movement of the 60s and 70s, like Navy's father, fashioned and developed celebrations within their communities. The holiday begins on December 26th and culminates in the communal feast called Karamu, a potluck dinner that Navy's says features various dishes of the African diaspora. Pardon me, but I'm not sure the pronunciation. You'll have to forgive your reader. Karamu is probably more likely. But food is an integral part of the every day of the celebration. Because most African Americans have ancestral roots in West and Central Africa, African American foodways have strong ties to West African culinary traditions. These roots show up in one-pot rice dishes like red rice and jambalaya, which are connected to West African jollof rice, and in soups and stews like okra stew. Author and historian Dr. Jessica B. Harris was one of the first major food scholars to examine the role of food in Kwanzaa celebrations and how it can be a tool for black Americans to connect with their African heritage and reimagine their future in the United States. Her book, A Kwanzaa Keepsake, Celebrating the Holiday with New Traditions and Feasts, which was published in 1998, was a foremost text for black Americans seeking to craft their own traditions and memories. Breaking bread in community is a very important feature of Kwanzaa. It reinforces the seven principles of Kwanzaa, said Navies. That's why it's so important that you sit and share food with your community to reinforce whichever principle you're highlighting on that particular evening. But also, the food represents the work that people have put in to bring prosperity to the table and the work that needs to be done. Since the holiday is just over 50 years old, there's no one way to celebrate as Kwanzaa resurges in popularity amid a growing desire to more deeply connect with black heritage among African Americans, families and youth are finding their own ways to approach this holiday. A reality that keeps Dr. Harris hopeful, who first started celebrating Kwanzaa during the 1990s. She said, I think one of the things that has happened is that is more than likely going to continue to happen is we find, as we find a generation of young people who are crafting a new way of being African American, the whole idea of a search for a creation of places, I think Kwanzaa is becoming a part of that or has the potential to become a part of that because it allows us to express ourselves, our ourselves, our otherness, and to celebrate ourselves and our otherness in other kinds of ways. Well, that brings me to the end of our time. Thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. Please tune in to all of our programs. 